sticking in here with us. Let's go to Gospel of Luke in chapter number 23 this morning. Luke chapter number 23. And there's 24 chapters, folks, so we're getting close. All right, we're getting close. But Luke chapter number 23. I wish I could say I planned it out this well, but we'll conclude the Gospel of Luke on Christmas Eve. And we'll look at uh, the Emmaus Road experience, looking about how all the scriptures point to Jesus Christ. We're going to be doing a Christmas series this year called Jesus at the Center and looking at the story of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension uh, through a Christmas lens. We'll look forward to that. That'll start next week. And sometime between now and next week, the church will turn Christmassy. I know some of you guys walked in. I just saw the sinking of your face for those of you guys expecting more trees and excitement in the in the church this morning. So next week, we'll turn into Christmas, and uh, we'll decorate around here, switch to some Christmas music, and be able to enjoy and celebrate uh, the coming of Jesus. But Luke chapter 23, I do encourage you guys to be praying for the Medora family. Uh, Maggie's dad passed away last night, which was kind of expected to be going through some heart struggles, um, but continue to pray for her, for her, her family. Uh, he did come to know the, the Lord as a Savior about three weeks ago, and so we're rejoicing the promise of heaven and uh, be praying for the Medoras as they journey through this grief and time of loss as well. But Luke chapter 23, uh, we'll start reading verse number one. We'll read down, we'll read a good chunk of scripture this morning, but stick with me. Uh, we're going to look at the trial of Jesus. And uh, look at Jesus' trial from three different perspectives, three different groups of people that we're going to see displayed for us in this passage. Again, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one from a seat rack near you or uh, open up that handout you got when you came in and follow along with us. Okay, Luke 23, verse 1. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him, being Jesus, unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute or taxes to Caesar saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priest and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged in the Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he was desirous to see him for a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he had hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again back to Pilate. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together for before they were enmity between themselves. So Jesus is crossing, <laughs> um, building bridges here, I guess. Verse 13. And Pilate, when he called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverts the people and Behold, I, having examined him before you, have fall, found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof you're accusing him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity, he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again unto them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I find no cause of death in him. I will chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they had required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. So again, walking verse by verse the Gospel of Luke, taking a look here at the end of Holy Week or the Passion Week. Uh, Thursday night into Friday morning, wherein Jesus is arrested and put on trial. We saw last week Jesus go through a little bit of a sham trial with the Jewish uh, powers that be. We see him arrested by the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees, brought into a house where we see Peter's betrayal and denial of Jesus. And we see Jesus beaten there. They mock him, put the blindfold over his head, and are kind of punching him and wailing on him, saying, 
If you can, if you're the Messiah, tell us who hit you, right? Well, this is now Friday morning. They've now they've taken him from this home of the high priest, and they don't have the ability under Roman jurisdiction to to execute anybody. So they need the Romans' help. So they bring him unto Pilate. We're going to see Jesus goes through kind of various sorts of bogus trials before various groups of weak and broken people. And a really interesting thing happens as we look at this trial. As Jesus is examined, he himself proves to be innocent, but the hearts of the people who are examining him are exposed. While they're examining Jesus, it's almost like they themselves get put on trial. We'll look at three different groups of people that interact with Jesus at this trial. And we're going to see as they are trying to exercise judgment on Jesus or leadership over Jesus, it's actually them that are put on trial. It's actually them that are exposed. This happens in every area of your life. If you serve in some kind of uh, position of leadership or judgment over other people, it's yourself that becomes exposed. Um, you know, there's situations where I'll sit down with a young couple, right? And we're talking about premarital counseling, right? They're going to get married, and I'm sitting down there, and I'm supposed to tell them uh, all the stuff not to do, right, is basically what I have to share, right? But at the end of that, I usually go home and say, you know, I need to go home, and I need to do the things that I just told them to do, right? Like all the stuff I just told them about pursuing one another, I need to take my wife on a date, right? All the stuff I talk about resolving conflicts, I'm realizing I need to go resolve some conflict, right? You Sometimes it's when you're leading, when you're executing judgment over others, it's yourself that becomes exposed. We examine someone else's life, and what gets exposed is our own heart. We see this all over the place. Um, maybe we, uh, one of our apartments we lived in, we had these, uh, our neighbors, I like dogs, but I like dogs that are the size of dogs. I don't like mini dogs, okay? Um, I think mini dogs are results of the fall. I think we can trace that theologically <laughs> and see that, no, but um, I can deal with barking. I have a hard time with, with yapping, okay? I just have a hard time with that. There's something about the, the decibel level or the little yip and the yap, it just drives me crazy. Um, we had neighbors that had these dogs, they would kind of get out and they'd, they'd yip and yap around early in the morning, and the guy would feel really bad about it, and... To be honest, I can sleep to just about everything, so he didn't really have to feel bad. It was, you know, 5 a.m., but I would get woken up not by his dogs yipping and yapping, but by him yelling at his dogs to stop yipping and yapping, right? <laughs> you're going to wake the whole neighborhood up. I'm like, you just woke the whole neighborhood up with your yelling over him, right? You're executing judgment, and it's you that gets exposed. We were flying back, uh, my wife and kids, uh, from California, and there was a particular family. Uh, if you've ever flown with kids, you realize I have grace for everyone who flies with kids, right? Because... Uh, sometimes on those flights, I am that family with those kids. So uh, we were flying home, and there was a particular group of kids who were just having a hard time, right? They were having a hard time. They didn't want to be there. They were tired. They were cranky. And everyone was being okay, and they were, everyone was being understanding. But the mom of these kids, she kind of made a scene for herself, right? She was yelling at her kids to be calm, and everyone wasn't getting bothered at her kids. But she's the one making everybody uncomfortable, right? Um, I don't care about the kids, man, but you need to calm down, right? You're screaming to everybody, making everybody scared, right? Um, it happens in our own, my own home, with my own parenting. My son is eight, almost nine, smarter than his dad, okay, really sharp kid, got a better vocabulary than I have, reads more than I do, uh, which is frustrating when he's a child, right? Because um, parenting, examining him ends up with myself sometimes getting examined. You know, eat your vegetables, well, you didn't eat your vegetables, Right? Or stop yelling at your sister while you're yelling at me while you're yelling at my sister, for yelling at my sister, right? Um, we examine someone else, and we ourselves, gets ex we get exposed. It's kind of the nature of the deal. What we're looking at in this text is Jesus is the only truly innocent one, the only one in the history of mankind who doesn't deserve to sit under anybody else's judgment. The only person that's ever lived that no one else has a right to stand over them and execute judgment over them. And what happens is he's going to be proven innocent, but we get a little insight into the hearts of humans. We get a little insight into the hearts of humanity, into the hearts of the people who are examining Jesus. So we're going to look at three groups of them, and I want us to cross-examine our own hearts while we do this. Okay, well, looking at how Jesus gets examined, let's look at our own hearts. I think we're going to find some commonalities. Many of us will. Maybe with one of these groups, maybe with all of these groups, because the same thing happens when we encounter Jesus. You come to Jesus, our hearts are exposed. So I'm going to take an opportunity here in Luke 23 and remind us of these things. The first group we're going to see, we're going to call them the, the self-righteous religious crowd. Okay, I don't remember what I put that in your outline. The self-righteous, okay? The self-righteous. Let's start in verse number one. Okay, verse number one. 
And the whole multitude of them arose and led Jesus unto Pilate. Now, let's just rewind our mental history to last week. Okay, who is this multitude of people? This is the religious elite that we saw Jesus tried before last week. Okay, this is the, the same group that last night was kind of bludgeoning Jesus and accusing Jesus, that religious crew called the Sanhedrin. This is a collection of scribes, religious leaders, and Pharisees. Basically, the, they're the religious elite, okay? They're the ones who have it all together. They're the people who are these meticulously religious, devout people. They have some kind of jurisdiction and leadership over their people, over the temple and over the worship of God and some civil leadership over Jewish people. And what you find out as you read out more in the Gospels about these guys is they were really meticulous about maintaining the letter of the law. We've seen that throughout our study of Luke. These guys were really focused on making sure they followed every little line and every little period and every little punctuation mark about the letter of the law. You got all these Old Testament restrictions and rules about what you can eat and where you can go and what you can do and what you can't do. And these guys had them all memorized. They were ready to go with every possible situation all of these unique rules and regulations that applied to Israel. But we see that they had by and large missed the heart of God while following the law of God. They missed his heart. They missed who he was as an individual. They missed the heart of love that he has for people. You've got these guys that are legitimately, they're tithing out of their salt and pepper. Like Imagine that. We go home tonight and you, you go to the store maybe and you buy a, a packet of table salts. We have a family in our church that eats really healthy and they tell me I shouldn't eat table salts I need to get my own rock and grind it out, but I buy table salts, okay? Um, I'll probably regret it 40 years from now. But if you go home and you, you, know, you buy a little thing of table salt, and imagine pouring it all out and counting out 10% of that and then figuring out a way to, to dedicate that 10% to the Lord, right? That's, that's what these people are doing. Their spice rack, their, their, their basil, and their, their, their pepper, their, their, their tithing out of it, but they have forgotten to love mercy. They, they've forgotten to pursue justice. They've forgotten to walk in humility, right? The basis of the law they've completely missed. They've latched on to the rules of God, but by, in large part, they've completely lost the heart of God. The previous chapter, we just saw these guys move under the cloak of darkness as cowards, move in on Jesus, arrest Jesus. They can't be seen by the crowds of people that love Jesus. They go in the middle of the night. They bring him before their council, their Sanhedrin, they have their first mock trial where they declare him guilty because they ask him if he's the Messiah, and he said, it doesn't matter what I say, you're going to do what you're going to do anyways. And they decide, you know what, he's a heretic, he's a blasphemer, and he has to be put to death. Problem is, they can't do it. They don't have the authority to execute this judgment on Jesus, so they have to go and they have to take him to the Romans who are ruling over the region. The guy they go to that's the leader of this is Pilate. He has the legal authority, Pontius Pilate does, to execute capital punishment. So they get all their crowd together. They say, we caught a guy, Pilate, it's now your job to execute him. Verse number two. They begin to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, there's three accusations here in this one verse. Three charges they're going to bring up against Jesus before Pilate. Number one, we found this man to be misleading our nation. He's perverting our nation. Is that true? Obviously it's not true. Point number two, they say, we found this guy saying you shouldn't give taxes to Caesar. Now, rewind your minds, guys. We saw Jesus actually ask this direct question. Should we give taxes to Caesar or to God? And what does Jesus say? Given to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, given to the Lord that which belongs to the Lord. It's another false accusation. Jesus actually says, I don't care what you do with your money. He has no political agenda of trying to take the money of these people. Then they say, thirdly, you know, he's Christ the king. Now this one, there's a twist in. Because he did say he was the Messiah. And he did say that he is the king. But they're trying to paint this in a way to the Romans that this is some kind of a national security threat. That this guy also says he's the Caesar. This guy also says he's the ruler. This guy's trying to overthrow Rome. He wants to sit on the throne of Pilate, sit on the throne of Caesar, when Jesus has no desire to do that. They bring the charges before Pilate, and they, they just ultimately, they just don't like this guy, okay? This is group number one, the religious self-righteous. Let me just fast forward now. I got, I got 25 verses. I want to go quickly, okay? Um, 
Look at the, the four more verses where this group shows up. Verse number 10. Let's look at their posture. Let's look at their personality. Verse 10. The chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently, that's a good word, vehemently accused him. Angrily, passionately, losing their breath, right in the face, right? Maybe some of you guys got in a political argument with family over Thanksgiving. You know what vehemently is, right? Vehemently accused him. Verse 18. They, being the religious crowd, cried out all at once saying, away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. They're getting the crowd worked up. It's becoming a bit of a, of a mob. Verse 21, but they cried again, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 23, and they were instantly together with loud voices requiring that Jesus would be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. Their posture in Jesus, you think these guys go out for coffee and enjoy each other's company? They don't like, like, they hate Jesus, right? Get in the mind, your mind just an image of, of protesters angry at a rally, right? Like you kind of get the picture in your mind, the scene. These guys want Jesus dead. They're, they're going to make it a whole scene. They're going to make it known to CNN, Fox News, whatever side you land on in the news debate, right? In the whole world, crucify him. The question for us is what have these, what, why are they so angry? Cried vehemently screaming with loud voices why are they so angry what has got these religious moral good guys in our minds so bothered what did jesus demand that made them react like this here's what we understand about this group of people moreover about jesus what does jesus say his mission is he's come to seek and to save the lost that was his ministry that's the purpose for which jesus came to this world he comes to forgive sinners he came to redeem those who had sinned, those who were dead in their sins, who needed saving from their sin. The Gospel of Mark tells us when Jesus steps on the scene, the very first words out of his first sermon was the word repent. Repent. In other words, to turn from sin, to change your mind about sin. And so his very first message is offensive. His message has been to turn and repent from sinfulness and brokenness and selfishness. Now, who's Jesus talking to? Who, who are the sinners that Jesus is referring to? Romans 3 says all of us are guilty of sin. All of us fall short of the perfection of God. So who's sinners? Everybody's a sinner. And so Jesus' life and teaching and ministry is really only good news if we can first come to term with the fact that we are sinners. It's good news to those of us who admit our brokenness. However, if you are a religious, self-righteous, moralistic person who is really convinced yourself that you're not bad, that you're not a sinner, that you don't need grace, that you've kept all the rules, that God must love me because I'm a pretty good person, that God must love me because I'm a basically good guy, and Jesus is telling me I need to repent. What? Repent of what? Jesus' life, teaching, and ministry is not good news to you. It's offensive to you. That's this first group of people. They're offended by Jesus' preaching. They're offended by Jesus' mission. Jesus comes. He tells them, you guys need to repent and trust in me. You guys need to turn from your sinfulness and brokenness. They say, how dare you call us sinners? How dare you tell us that we need to repent? That's this group of people. I want to summarize it this way, okay? The, the religious, self-righteous crowd see the world and people in the world. Like There's two basic groups. There are good people and there are bad people. There are good people, and there are bad people. But who are the good people? In their minds, they're the people who look like them, talk like them, dress like them, act like them, behave like them, vote like them. That's the good people, right? That's really convenient. That works out. Who are the bad people? Everybody else, okay? Good people are those who are like us, good, moral people. The bad people are everybody else. So Jesus says, all y'all are bad. Repent. They said, well, we're, we're the good side, man. You need to go tell those people they need to repent. Well, he did. He does tell those people. According to Scripture, there's really basically two groups of people in the world. They get that right. It's, but it's not good people and bad people. There are bad people, and then there are bad people who have been saved by Jesus. There are bad people who have been made aware, come to a knowledge of their sinfulness and brokenness, and then have been redeemed by the grace of Jesus, saved by the mercy of Jesus. Those are the two teams, okay? Those are the two sides. 
All of us are in the same place, though, sinners. And so Jesus steps in the scene. He's talking to the whole crowd of sinners. He says, you guys need to repent. He comes to the fornicators. He comes to the drunks. He comes to the ladies with bad reputation. He comes to the, the crooks and the rebels, those that are swindlers. He says, you guys need to repent. And they say, you're right. Yeah, you don't have to convince those people that they're sinners. You don't have to convince those people that they're in need of something. They said, Jesus, you should come over to our house and teach us this. And Jesus does. He goes to their home. He gets the reputation as being a friend of sinners. He's welcomed. He teaches. He preaches. He forgives them. He ministers to them. He calls them to repent of their sin. And guess what? They did. They turned from their life of brokenness. They turned from the life of selfishness. They turned and they trusted in Jesus. And it was a beautiful thing. Jesus' mercy and Jesus' message of repentance is good news to those of us who can come to a point and admit that we need it. That we're in need of that forgiveness. The Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the heart, melts the eyes, hardens the clay. In other words, the, the message of Jesus to some is good news and it melts the heart. Others, the message of Jesus, the warmth of the message of Jesus hardens the heart. It, it hardens the heart of the self-righteous. It hardens the heart of the, the moralist. So the message of Jesus is good news. It's beautiful news when you're a sinner. When we know that we're broken, we know we've fallen short, we know that we need grace, we say, thank you, Jesus, right? We need that forgiveness. But for those with a hard heart, stuck in self-righteousness, who have too much pride to admit that they need saving, that they need forgiveness, that get, that's horrible news. And they, they go on the offensive against Jesus. Now, Jesus is out to get these guys. When you keep that in mind, he's not antagonizing them just for the sake of antagonizing them. He's not just yelling at them for the sake of their, you know, getting them worked up. He's preaching grace and forgiveness and love to these guys. He, he's preaching out of a way that he's trying to pursue these guys. He loves the Pharisee just as much as he loves the, the woman with the bad reputation. He loves the Pharisee just as much as he loves the thief. Sometimes we get in our minds that Jesus really loves the broken people. Not the, Jesus is pursuing the religious moralist. He's pursuing those that are stuck in this self-righteousness. But he's going to do it in a very confrontational way. I want to give you a list of some of the names that Jesus calls as a religious self-righteous. You're a kid in the room. Uh, this does not give you permission, okay, to call your kiddos names or your siblings names, okay? Jesus was God. He can, he can call people names because he's a heart that's perfect. You don't, okay? Um, what does Jesus call the religious Pharisees? He calls them blind guides, fools, whitewashed tombs, clean on the inside or clean on the outside, like rotting with corpses on the inside. He calls them serpents. Vipers, hypocrites, children of hell, just to name a few of his top list. He tells them you rob from widows, you exploit the poor, you mock God, and your dad is the devil. This doesn't sound very nice from Jesus, does it? Well, Jesus isn't always nice, but he's always loving. He's always loving. It's out of love that he needs to wake these guys up from their religious self-righteousness, but they don't repent. They don't wake up. Their hearts don't soften. They don't admit their need of forgiveness. They hold their ground. And verse 23 is going to tell us their voices prevail. They're ultimately going to silence the truth. And many of us were guilty of the same thing. Many of us, our testimony is that we were caught not just in what the world would call being a bad person. You know, a lot of us don't have jailhouse testimony. Some of us do. Some of us, we weren't trapped in that kind of thing. We were trapped in moralism. We were trapped in religion. We were trapped in self-righteousness. And we thought we were good enough. That we were good people. And because we were good people, quote unquote, God was going to be happy with us and be welcoming to us. That there was no need for us to find forgiveness. I think we do the same thing. And it's not just these religious wingnuts all the far, the far extreme of any side. This can happen in a good gospel preaching church. When we can reduce this book to a list of things we do and things we don't do, rather than the story of how Jesus fixed us from not being able to do the things we should do and not do. This is the story of redemption, where we all of a sudden reduce this book to the things that we're the good guys and those are the bad guys. We reduce the gospel of Jesus to morality and religious self-righteousness. We preach sermons about 15 ways you can improve your life and become a better husband and become a better wife and become a better parent. And we forget to preach, oh yeah, Jesus is grace to sinners. 
who are undeserving, who can't be better husbands, can't be better fathers, without the help of Jesus, the power of his Holy Spirit. It's called religious self-righteousness, and it is exhausting. It's exhausting. Some of us know this life. It results in one of two things. It results in either despair or pride. If you're in the room and you're, you're trapped in this religious morality, it results in one of those two things. Those are the only end destinations of religion. Despair, when I've prided myself and be able to do the right things, say the right things, act the right things, and then guess what? I fail again and again and again and again. I look up and I realize I'm, I'm failing at this. We despair. It's the impossibility of living the Christian life without Jesus. Or it leads to pride because we're really good at it. Some of you guys are so disciplined, you could do this whole thing, follow all the rules, say the right things, wake up at the right time, read the right books, do all the things you're supposed to do without a relationship with Jesus, and it lifts you up in arrogance and pride to the point you look down at everybody else. Those are the only two destinations of religious morality. It'll lead you to believe, I can't do it, I've tried hard, or I can do it. Look at how moral and good I am. I'm not the perfect dad, I'm not the perfect mom, I'm not this perfect Christian, or I am the perfect dad, I am the perfect mom, I am the perfect Christian. I'm better than those people. God must love me because I'm a good person. What is pride? Pride, the Bible tells us, is the chief of sins. It's the originator of sins. Got Satan kicked out of heaven. And I think it's the very sin that is eventually going to, we're going to see nailing Jesus to a tree. It's called pride, self-righteousness, religion. And this morning, I want us to kind of cross-examine our own hearts with these religious Pharisees. Do we see Jesus as some kind of primarily, do we see him as a moral instructor or do you see him as your savior? Do you see him as a thing, got one who tells you things you can do and you can't do, which for sure there's some things in scripture Jesus is going to tell us, this is the path that leads to flourishing. This is the path that leads to peace in your home. This is the path that leads to the best for all of humanity. But ultimately, Jesus is not just my moral instructor. He's the forgiver of when I can't be moral. He's the savior of the times that I fall short. When we encounter Jesus, we encounter our sin. We realize we need grace. But the good news is Jesus has lots of grace. And he came to forgive those sins. Jesus himself got a reputation. He's a friend of sinners. And so listen to me in the room this morning. If you're a sinner and you know you're a sinner, that's good news. That's good news. Because Jesus not only wants to be a savior, he wants to be your friend. And Jesus is with you. Jesus is for you. Jesus isn't asking you this morning to be perfect. He wants you to admit that you're not and to bring your sins to him and find forgiveness and reconciliation. And so this morning, my hope is that you would confess those sins to him. Repent of your self-righteous religion, your morality, and trust Jesus. Group number one, the religious self-righteous. Group number two, I'm gonna call this group the people pleasers, okay? The people pleasers. We're gonna look at two rulers here, one named Pilate, one named Herod, and see how they cave to the pressure of those that are around them. Look at verse number 13. Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, you brought this man unto me as one that perverts the people. And behold, I examined him before you and have found, have found no faults in this man, touching those things wherever you accuse him. In other words, he says, hey, I, you, you bring this person, but I don't, you're telling me he did this, this, and this. You have no proof. I don't find any fault in this individual. The religious self-righteous have arrested Jesus. They're falsely accusing Jesus. And Pilate at this point, has the authority to kill him and says, you know what, I, I just, I don't see anything wrong with him. Verse number three, he tells us, he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, you, says it, you say it. Verse four again, I find no fault in this man. And so Pilate says, listen, this guy's not a threat. I, I hear you saying he wants to be a king. I don't see that in him at all, okay? I see you saying that he doesn't want anyone to pay taxes to Caesar. I don't see that in this, this man at all. I, I find no fault in this man. By the way, that's a really convicting statement. If someone puts you before a trial and tried to find something at fault with you, they could go to about three minutes before the sermon started, they could find fault in me, okay? All of us, they can't find any fault in Jesus. There's, there's no hint of sin. There's no hint of, of anything wrong. He, just, he, he's innocent, but these people are adamant. They continue, verse five, they were the more fierce. So now they're real mad. I, I don't find I don't any fault in this guy. Well, now they're going to raise the volume a little bit. You ever notice how that happens? Verse 5, he stirs up the people. Well, they look stirred up. Teaching their all jewelry beginning from Galilee to this place. The people are applying some pressure here. You ever felt that pressure? You felt pressure to, to maybe not stay 
with what Christ teaches us, not stay with our faith? You ever heard the external voices telling you to do the very things that you know God doesn't want you to do or to do the things, not to do the things God wants you to do? Feel the pressure of the crowd? Verse 6, when Pilate heard Galilee, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And as soon as he heard they belonged to the Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Well, here's what happens. Pilate, Lee sees, a way, Pilate sees a way out, okay? Um, he hears this guy from Galilee and thinks, finally, I don't even have to worry about this, right? Uh, maybe you get this in an email from your boss sometimes where it mentions just for one sentence somebody else's department, and you just forward that right onto them, right? He says, oh, cool. He's from Galilee. I don't even have to worry about this, right? So he sends him to Herod. He sees this kind of chicken way out, this coward way out, and just kind of weasels his way out of it. Because Pilate knows this is an innocent man. He has the complete authority. Pilate doesn't say, this is baloney. This is bogus, what you're saying. I'm just going to release this guy right now. But he listens to the voices of the people pressuring him. He sees a politically expedient way out, and he takes it. Oh, he's from Galilee. Well, they have their own leader, okay? So this isn't my jurisdiction. Let's send him up to Herod. He's denying culpability. He's denying his involvement. Either way, he's not going to release him as an innocent man. He's not going to put his head in a platter. He says, fine, this is my way out, right? This is my, I, everyone can be happy with me. He's, he's passive. He's desiring to keep everyone pleased with him. This is a leader who is unwilling to stand up for what is true, a leader who is unwilling to stand up for what is right because he's passive and he's cowardice and he's listening to the voices of everybody else around him the voices of all the people that are there. And so off goes Jesus. Pilate passes the buck, and now it's Herod's turn. Verse number eight. When Herod saw Jesus, he was happy. I love this. This is funny to me. He was desirous to see him a long season because he heard many things about Jesus, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. So Herod's like a kid at a birthday party when the clown walks in. Like, yes, right? I've heard about this guy. This is going to be awesome. I want to see him do a trick. I want to see him do a miracle. Herod just completely misses the, the spirit of what's going on here, right? I've heard of this guy. Maybe you can do a trick for us, Jesus. Maybe you can juggle, right? Show us some kind of a, of a miracle. Verse number nine, then he questioned him in many words, and Jesus answered him nothing. The tone changes. And the chief priests and scribes, evidently they're following from place to place. So Jesus gets transferred from Pilate up to Herod, and there's a caravan of people following that transfer. The chief priests, the Pharisees, stood and again accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught, mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. In other words, hey, we'll give you a little bit of what you want, but I'm going to send him right back where he came from. What do we have? We have two passive, people-pleasing kind of leaders who are bouncing an innocent man back and forth, both of them shirking their responsibility. Both of them saying that they don't want anything to do with this. Neither of them wants to take response. Pilate says this guy is innocent. Herod finds no reason to keep him chained up. But Jesus is still not free. If he's innocent, and this guy says there's no reason to keep him chained, why can't he go? Why is he still under arrest? Because they are afraid of the voices of the people. The crowd is pressuring them. And these two leaders are way more concerned with their poll numbers they're way more concerned with what the people think about them and the voices that are outside, the influencers, than they are doing what's right. And the scene culminates with Pilate declaring to the crowd three different times, verses 20, verse 22, verse 23, I find no fault in him. I'm going to let him go. What do they say? No. Right? They start yelling back at him. Every time the volume gets up, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 23, it kind of climaxes. They were instant with loud voices, screaming requiring that he would be crucified. And the voices of them of the chief priests prevailed. One of the saddest verses. The voices prevailed. And this moment in Scripture is kind of the tipping point. Jesus' fate is now sealed. These two men have cowered and listened to the voices of the crowd. Listen, when you're at the command of other people and what other people think of you, you're an enslaved person. I look at Pilate and Herod, and they're just as much, if not more, in chains than Jesus is. They're completely captive to the opinions and the voices of this crowd. If you're afraid of what people think about you, we can't follow Jesus. If, if our desire for human approval and our desire for the applause of men, our desire to be popular, our desire to not offend anyone is the primary voice that drives you, you cannot be a faithful follower of Jesus. 
Everyone who has trusted in Jesus had to disappoint someone along the way. A lot of us have wrestled with this. This is a lot of times the conversation we'll have with people before they get baptized that we can do next week. Because that is a statement for a lot of people of, hey, are you going to, they've got questions, are you, are you going to post the pictures you take of baptism? Kind of nervous. I don't, want, I don't know if I want anybody to see, right? I'm good with my Jesus friends at church seeing that I got baptized. I don't know if I want my, my, my school friends to see. I don't know if I want my, uh, my professors to see. I don't know if I want my family to be aware of this decision. We're, we're fearful, right? It's in all of us to have that, that trepidation. Now, I'll stand with Jesus, but I'm kind of nervous. My parents are really smart, and they're going to think I'm dumb. Uh, I'll stand with Jesus, but I don't want my, uh, my homosexual friends to think I'm a, I'm a bigot. Uh, if I stand with Jesus, my, my colleagues are going to be weird with me now. They're going to be awkward with me. My career is not going to advance the way that I want it to. If I stand with Jesus, my professors will think I'm simple-minded and stupid and archaic and superstitious. Some of us, we came to Christ, our family thought we joined a cult. That's never a fun accusation, right? Oh, is that that? Oh, yeah, that, 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 that oh, what's going on with Jimmy? Oh, yeah, oh, Jimmy's at a cult. Oh, well, no, I'm not, but that's never a fun accusation to hear, right? Oh, he's one of those Jesus guys now. When I moved to New England, it was the first time I heard born again in a negative context. I grew up down south. If you're born again, that was a good thing. Up here, we make fun of people for being born again. I didn't realize that. It's like, oh, you're a born again. Yeah, team Jesus. I didn't realize it was a bad thing. And they're like, oh, you're making fun of me. Oh, okay. Um, I remember when I first kind of felt a burden from the Lord that this is what I was supposed to do with my life. I was a teenager, uh, last couple of years of high school, and I felt like I always kind of dreamed, I always kind of wanted to go to law school, be a lawyer. I liked to talk. I figured that would be a good way to make money and do it, okay? Um, and God said, no, you're going to talk for me, okay? And um, that's a weird thing to explain to people. Like, oh, you're, where are you going to go to school? I'm going to a, a Bible college. Oh, Interesting. Well, can you make any money doing that? I don't, I, I don't know. I haven't really, really gotten that far yet, to be honest with you. Uh, that's a great question. That's a great question. I should examine that, right? Uh, one guy who said, you're a really bright guy. That's a shame. You won't be contributing to society, right? It's just reality. You want to follow Jesus, and there's been many, many times where I heard a comment like that, and I have cowered, Okay. You want to follow Jesus, there's going to be moments where people aren't all going to stand up and applaud you. You're at work and you explain to people what you're doing for Christmas. Man, we're, you know, I, I love the traditions of Christmas. I love sparkly lights. I love everything about it. But me, for me, this is really, it's about Jesus. They're not, wow. They're not always going to applaud you. The reality is we all have to ask, will their voices prevail in my life? Will the voice of the crowd, will their anger, will their, their opposition, will it prevail? For Pilate and Herod, they did. They didn't stand up for what they knew was right. Well, they knew, I, I, I wish that Pilate and Herod would have been like confused. That would have been easier for me to understand. Like, oh yeah, I kind of see how he did this and that. I'll, I'll go with you. They knew it. They said, I see no fault in Jesus. There's no reason for him to be kept in chains, Herod says. There's no reason for him to be put to death. And yet they completely Follow the voice of the crowd. We all have these voices. Some of them are real. Some of them, you guys, you have family members that really do push back against you following Jesus. Some of us wrestle with real issues that you're going to forgo promotions at work because you're a follower of Jesus. Some of us, I think these voices are more made up in our own head sometimes. That opposition it's the voice of disapproval from people that we think might see what we do on Facebook. I always date myself when I say Facebook and people under the age of 30 kind of roll their eyes. Or the Instagram, right? I always used to make fun of my dad because he didn't call it Facebook, he called it the Facebook. And that's when you know you're old, okay? Oh, that's on the YouTube. Or that's on the Facebook or that's on the Instagram, right? But it's the voice of the disapproval of people, right? I, if, I, if I put this verse out there, now, if I, if I show what I'm doing on a Sunday, there's going to be people who are disappointed in that. There's going to be people who push back against that. The question we have to ask is, will their voices prevail, or will the voice of Jesus prevail? Will the voice of truth prevail in our lives? Listen, I think when we let our lives be dictated and controlled by the voice and the crowd and the disapproval of other people, we lose ourselves completely. 
Some of you guys feel like if I follow Jesus, I'm going to lose myself. There's part of that that's true. Jesus tells us that we do lose ourselves, we gain the world, right? We, we, find, we actually find ourselves in Jesus. But when you are completely controlled by everybody else's whims and desires for you, who are you? I'm completely controlled by their voices. You become a shell of a person, a shell of a, of a man, a woman, a child. Jesus isn't your Lord. You're not in control. We become the puppet of the opinions of other people. We completely lose our humanity. It's not even real. Jesus says, be careful. He actually says, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Because if no one is disappointed with you, you might not be really standing for anything. Let me speak a word of encouragement to my fellow people pleasers in the room. Before you start thinking that I'm talking to you, I'm talking to myself, okay? This is a real world struggle for me. Uh, I hate disappointing people. I wore this awesome flannel shirt today so you guys would think that I'm awesome, right? Um, yet to hear one positive comment, so I really am hurt. I'm, I'm doubting it. I'm doubting my decision. No, I'm just kidding. We love the approval of people. We love the affirmation of people. We love when people tell us you're doing the right thing, you're going the right way. But let me tell you, Jesus has served me far better than the approval of people. In the gospel, we learn that Jesus died, rose for me because of that God the Father approves of me. Because Jesus died and rose for me, the Father in heaven accepts me perfectly. Because Jesus lived and died and rose for me, God the Father is pleased with me. And he accepts me. And what the Father's acceptance and approval and appreciation does for me is it allows me to disappoint you and anybody else. We have this sufficiency in our relationship with Jesus that allows us to disappoint the cries of people. It allows us to disappoint the, the pressure of those at work who want us to live a certain way or follow a certain path. We don't have to live crippled by the fear of other people's opinions. It frees us to really be human again. It frees us to follow Jesus. It frees me to love and to worship and obey Jesus as my Lord because I'm already loved and accepted and approved by the Father. And that's really the only approval that you need. That's the approval that your heart wants. Some of us, you're in the room and you're in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, and you're still imprisoned by the opinions of people. You're imprisoned by the opinions of your parents. Mom or dad never told you enough. The affirmation that we needed, and we always felt maybe like the black sheep in the family for being a follower of Jesus, and we lived a shell of an existence because of that rejection. And my hope this morning is that Jesus can free you from that saying, listen, because of Jesus, the Father approves of you. Because of Jesus, the Father accepts you. Because of Jesus, the Father is pleased by you. And you, need to, you just need to not let their voices prevail over your life anymore. One last group, and I'll be done. One last group. So we have the religious self-righteous getting the crowd worked up. We have the passive people-pleasers and the rulers not doing the right thing but following the voice of the crowd. And thirdly, I want to see the pardoned guilty the pardoned guilty. The third and the last one we'll look at is my favorite. It's really just a brief commercial in Luke's gospel, but verse number 18, we get introduced to another guy. Verse 18, they all cried out at once, saying, away with this man and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition or, or, or kind of a uprising he caused in the city and for murder was cast into prison. The other gospels give us a little bit more understanding that at the Passover, there was a custom, a Jewish custom, that one prisoner will be released at the Passover as part of the celebration. One guilty one will be declared innocent by the, the powers that be and released on this day. So Pilate thinks this is another opportunity for me to get out of doing what I know is right, right? I'll present to them this opportunity because uh, they'll for sure let Jesus go because of this holiday and this, this celebration of Passover. But in this moment, they say, you know what? We don't want Jesus. We want the murderer Barabbas. We want the guy who should be in chains to be released, and we want the guy that is declared innocent to be chained. We want the guy that should be crucified to be set free, and we want the one that should be set free to be crucified. Give us Barabbas. He's the one who causes the insurrection. He's the one who's the murderer. He's the one who's the thug. Release him. Verse 25, we see the confirmation of it. And he released unto him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. What a picture of the gospel. I need to hurry. But that the guilty one would go free, 
and that the innocent one would take his place. Isn't that ultimately the gospel? Jesus in our place. Jesus taking the punishment that we deserve. Jesus taking the cross that we had earned. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this detail. It's a really short little introduction to Barabbas. We get this picture of a man with a death sentence over his head who walks away because Jesus stepped in and took his place. A man who was under the justice, rightly deserved justice for what he had done is set free because Jesus receives his punishment. I love this because you and I, church, we are Barabbas. In this story, this is ultimately the one that we resemble the most. Jesus is the only innocent one. If any of us, again, underwent the same trial process that Jesus did, all of us would be declared guilty and rightfully so. None of us are perfect. Jesus is the only truly innocent one before heaven and on earth. And in Barabbas, we see a picture of ourselves, the guilty ones, the ones deserving of the punishment, the ones condemned to die, the ones with a death sentence over our heads who are undeserving, unworthy, we see that one being released and the only righteous one, the only innocent one going forth in our place. We are Barabbas and Jesus goes forth for us. He dies for us. He dies for the sinner, for the murderer, for the, reb- for the rebel who needs forgiveness. So Jesus goes forth and he dies for the self-righteous religious folks like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He dies for those who need a religious or a righteousness that's greater than what they can muster up on them, by themselves. And Jesus also goes forth to the cross. And in that moment, he faces the execution, not just for the religious and the moralists, but for the Barabbases and the murderers and the broken. He faces not only the penalty of nails in his body, but the full consequence of the wrath and justice of God. In that moment, Jesus faces the disapproval of the Father for the first time. So that people like Barabbas and you and I can see the face of his approval. In that moment, Jesus the Son was abandoned by his father so that you and I could be accepted by the Father. We are Barabbas. And we see in this moment a picture of Jesus walking in and stepping in our place for our sins and for our justice and for the judgment that we deserve. This is the great transaction of the gospel. Where Jesus takes that which we deserve and he grants unto us that which he deserves. He takes my sinfulness, my brokenness, the justice that I deserve for my sin, and he grants unto me his perfection, his righteousness, his standing with the Father, the adoption papers that I'm now welcomed into the family of God. This is both true historically in the story of Barabbas, but it's also a very real personal reality for those of us who are in Christ. That when we put our trust in Jesus, his righteousness is given to us. His position is placed on us. And the justice that I deserve is placed on him. Just like Barabbas, we walk away eternally free because Jesus paid our price. And we receive not only his forgiveness, but we receive his friendship. Let me ask you this morning, are you actually, are you truly a Christian? Say, I check it on my census form. Are you a Christian? To be a Christian does not mean to be in the good guy category rather than the bad guy category. To be a Christian means that you saw yourself as Barabbas, that you saw yourself as the guilty one, and Jesus set you free through faith and trust in him. And our invitation to you today is if you haven't trusted in Jesus, would you do that today? You place your faith and trust in him. If you have trusted in Jesus, can I encourage you to enjoy the full benefits of what the friendship of Jesus means to us? You ever had a moment where maybe it was like a, 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 a dinner that somebody paid for and it was a buffet or it was a a work function or it was an all-inclusive trip and you thought to yourself, I gotta put a little pressure on myself to enjoy the full depth of this, okay? Um, Maybe we went to a resort somewhere that was all-inclusive. My wife and I don't drink, so we gotta eat a lot, okay? Uh, We gotta get the full payment for what we put in, right? So we gotta really receive everything that we've done. I wanna get the entire money's worth of everything that I've invested here. Some of you guys go to the Torrington Super Buffet and you have the same mentality. Okay, that's like $9, folks. It's not that much pressure on the Super Buffet, but some of us, we, we're, we're committed to it. But now I want to get the full benefits, right? If I'm putting this in, I want to reap the entirety of what I'm owed. Can I encourage you 
to enjoy the full benefits of your relationship with Jesus? Sometimes we receive his forgiveness, but guys, that's, 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 that was great, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me, and we, we kind of still kind of shirk away. We still kind of back away from the real enjoyment of our relationship with Christ. What it means that Jesus took your place, what it means that you're a child of God, is means that Jesus loves you, Jesus is with you, Jesus is for you, because Jesus took my punishment position, because Jesus took my place on the cross, because Jesus took the penalty for my sins. In the kingdom of God, there is no double jeopardy. What that means is the sins that I commit in the future, what do I do? I, I confess my sin to Jesus. I live openly in the light of community with relationships with other people. I want to enjoy the forgiveness of God. I can be free from guilt and shame and condemnation because Jesus took those things in my place. To have Jesus as your friend means that because the Father forsook Jesus, you can now experience the forgiveness and acceptance of the Father. I don't have to be insecure anymore, captive to people's opinions and approval of me. I can enjoy the approval of my God. This is the heart of God for us. This is the heart of God for this church, that we would be a gospel, good news, saturated church, that we wouldn't just be good, religious, moral people, but we would see ourselves as the Barabbases in the story. We see ourselves as the sinful ones that Jesus has set free, that we would live fully alive to God without guilt or shame, no hiding, no fear of man, alive to Jesus. And that be the testimony of our church on mission for him. The trial of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, that's what allows us to live that way. This morning, I hope if you find yourself in that camp of the religious self-moralist, that today be the day you'll have a light of the gospel to soften your heart. Don't resist it in hardening. Realize your brokenness, your sinfulness before Jesus and receive his mercy and forgiveness. If you're in the room and you're held captive by the opinions and the approval of other people, may we see that through Jesus we can find the acceptance and the approval and the welcome that we need to live and follow after him. And this morning, my hope is that we can rejoice with gratitude that Jesus saw us rightfully condemned, the punishment that we deserve over our heads, and Jesus said, I'll take their place. I'll take that punishment. I'll forgive of that sin. I'll take the punishment they deserve. And may we rejoice and the forgiveness that we've received, and may we enjoy the full benefits of what Jesus purchased for us. Let's bow for our prayer. We'll be dismissed for just a moment. Father, we love you. We thank you this morning for the opportunity you've given us to gather together. Jesus,